You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. You know, we spoke a moment ago about important rhythms that we enter into, and, and at this time we, we enter into this rhythm of hearing from God. We have spoken to God in our silent confession and in our prayers and in our singing, and now we get to hear from God from His Word. And so today's scripture is Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Let's go to Romans 4, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. It has been long understood by psychologists and physicians and religious leaders, as long as it has been studied, that the best way to comfort a despairing and discouraged and broken heart is for the person to believe that it will get better. That the future holds a a better promise and better circumstances than the present. Just consider how, how you might have been in a time of hurt and depression or discouragement and someone comes up with an encouraging word and helps you broaden your perspective for the future. Imagine, remember how good that feels and how that brings comfort to your heart. A good word, a good outcome, good news. Essentially, this is what it means to hope. The number one factor that can encourage a despairing heart is hope. What is hope? Hope is the desire of some good and the conviction that you will obtain it. Hope is a powerful motivator. We, we spend our lives as scavengers for hope, looking to obtain a, a better future. 
practically speaking, a better future for ourselves, a better future for our children, a healthier outcome for uh, our bodies physically or financially. We're always looking for a better employment. We're, we're always looking for the future, towards the future of something better than what we have today. However, our, we are only as secure as the basis of our hope. And we're scavengers for hope, looking for that thing to, to really anchor our heart to. And the problem is we often anchor it to things that can never deliver on what it, they promise. When we place our ultimate hope in people or politics or finances or friends or family, we will habitually feel hopeless when that person or that thing does not turn out the way we expect. We trust somebody, we put our heart on the line, we put all of our energy into something and we're let down. We feel defeated, we feel hopeless. And so we go looking for that next thing that can bring us hope, that can satisfy, that could bring comfort. And that's how we spend most of our lives. Just this pattern of despair, seeking hope, finding happiness for a moment, and then being discouraged once again. That's why the story of Christmas is the only sure basis of our hope. Just when things seemed hopeless and beyond repair, God draws nearer to us than ever before through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God draws nearer to us than he ever has been before, saying, I am with you, I care for you, I will rescue you, I will be with you forever. I am your hope that will never disappoint. I am true to all of my promises and everything that I say will come true. Advent is the, the season of reflection, not just on the surety of God's promises, but also how, how, how so much of this world will let us down. Reminding ourselves, remembering, remembering how we often anchor our heart to the hope in this world and how it's never enough. There's a stanza in O Holy Night which sings, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, or soul, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Weariness, what is that? Weariness, it's, it's physical and emotional exhaustion from just life. And here is this promise. And here is this reality, this true story that hope breaks into that and brings a new morning, a new glorious morn. For this Advent series, we, we look more deeply at the theme of hope. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about hope in several passages in the book of, of Romans. It's so profound, so interesting, just doing a, a Bible search on the word hope, and it shows up all over the place in Romans. I was so intrigued and so encouraged by that, unaware of how much the book of Romans speaks of hope because of Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. Romans is a portion of scripture that deals hands-on with the pain that comes from living in a broken world and speaks openly about it. 
It kind of gives us invitation to speak openly about it, to be honest about it. Life is hard. And, there, and we could count the ways in which it is hard. There is a mound of evidence that shows us that, that we live in a hopeless world, that we have pain, that things are broken, that they don't work the way they should, that, that relationships don't work the way that they ought to, our bodies don't work the way they ought to, our mind, our emotions are not always accurate. And, and, the, and Romans even says, all of creation groans for healing. And Romans is not just a, a, a book written to God's people to remind us and to tell us why the world is broken, but to also show us where our hope is found. It leaves us searching for hope and it points our hope to the only place it can truly be found in the coming of Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection. So here's our outline for this morning as we look through this passage. In order to embrace hope, we want to see three ingredients that must be present. Three ingredients in order to embrace hope in our life. A promise is given in the midst of despair. Uh, we need to know the evidence against the promise coming true, and we need to transfer our trust. So let's, let's look at these. We'll look at first at how it applies to Abraham and then how it applies to us. A promise given in the midst of a despairing, in the midst of suffering. So the, the story of Christmas is meant to be told with a, with a it's not meant to be told as a starting point at the manger. Christmas story does not begin with Jesus' birth, but actually way before that, even before the, the Old Testament and the, and the prophets, but it begins with a promise made a very long time ago. Men and women were in perfect peace with God. They were in perfect relationship with one another and with creation in the garden. And they ultimately did not trust in God, did not believe in his promises. They took things into their own hands. They believed the lie of the devil. Sin came into the world and it broke everything. Relationship with one another, relationship with God, relationship with creation. It was all broken and destroyed by sin. And thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God spoke promise to Adam and Eve that he would end the curse, that he would send an offspring that he would have one born of the, of, of the seed of woman into the world at great loss to his own life for our rescue. Adam and Eve would fail and generation after them would fail. You and I would fail, but God would not fail. He would be faithful to his promise. And it is exactly this promise that he reaffirms to Abraham in Romans 4. God comes to Abraham, he approaches him and he says, you will be the father of a great people and from this people will come the rescue of the world, blessing to all people. A great nation will come from you. And before we get to the fulfillment of this promise ultimately in Jesus, which we know to be true, we must consider this promise to Abraham. Abraham was a, a pagan man. He was actually the son of an idol maker. His father whittled little idols out of wood that were used for people to worship the moon god, Nana, who is the supreme of all the pantheonic moon, uh, gods in the Mesopotamia, Nana. So if you're a grandma and your name's Nana, you're just like the supreme moon god. That's right. <laughs> How ironic that Abraham was without a family he was a man without a land. He was a man without citizenship. He was a man without a future. He was a man without blessing. He was a man without an heir. And here he is worshiping this pagan God who is the God of fertility and life, 
prosperity, blessing, and a future, and a hope. And he had none of those things. And along comes Yahweh, the one true God, and comes to Abraham and says, I will give you all of these things. I will give you a future. I will give you a blessing. I will give you an heir, a family, a nation. I will give you a people. I will give you a land to possess. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will never leave you. My love will be with you forever. It's a bold promise. Abraham's been likely searching for this his whole life, placing his hope in, in, in a pagan God that could never deliver. It is part of his whole family business. His dad made a living off of this and it could never deliver. His hope was in the world and the things that the world could give and he was without any of those things. And God comes along and says, I will give you these things. So what hope does Abraham have that God's promise will come true? How does he know that God will come true, that that this will actually happen? Because he's been searching for this his whole life. There's only two possible reasons that Abraham can have hope. The first is that, it, that hope will come through obedience to God. But nowhere are we given in this story and relationship between Abraham and God of a commandment to obey or a behavior to change or a way to live. There is nothing that Abraham is told to do or to act differently or think differently. In fact, it would be for another 500 years that the law of God would even be given. So if we're thinking, well, Abraham needed just to obey God's law, we are reminded the law of God doesn't come for another 500 years summarized in the 10 commandments given to Moses. No law had been given. No commandment had been given. So there's nothing for him to obey. So the second possible reason is that it comes through faith in the promise of God. God made a promise. God told Abraham, you are going I'm going to do something for you and in you and to you and it will bless you, it will rescue you and it will bless all people. We are told that his faith is not rooted in his ability to obey God or the endurance of his character or his track record or, but, but, but it came through fully convinced that God would do exactly what he said he would do. And that is all that we are given and Abraham believed. Abraham believed. And all of this in the midst of really compelling reasons to not believe God. The first ingredient, the promise of God, in order for us to have hope, we need to reflect on what God has said to us, the promise that has been given. And looking at Abraham, we see this promise. It is clear, it is bold, it is radical. But then we move to this second ingredient, In order to embrace hope, we need to know the evidence against the promise coming true. Why why do we need to know that? Because hope by definition requires a longing for something that seems out of reach. No one puts their head on their pillow on Thursday evening after a long night and says, I really hope that tomorrow is Friday. No one does that. Why? Because it's Friday. We know that this, there's, no, there's no conflict. There's no evidence against the fact that tomorrow will be Friday. We just know it's going to happen. You don't hope for something that is not sure to happen. You, you hope for things that seem out of reach. And look at what is out of reach for him. 
In order for Abraham to truly hope in God, he had to know the mound of evidence stacked against it coming true. And our passage makes it so clear. Abraham hoped against hope. This is the phrase, he hoped against hope. He hoped when he had no reason to hope. He hoped when all of the evidence pointed in the opposite direction of it actually coming true. Abraham is pushing a hundred years old, not likely to father a child. His wife, Sarah, is pushing 90 years old. And if history is showing everything, she has been unable, she has suffered from infertility her entire life, unlikely to bear a child. He had no home to call his home. And at that time, he had no land, he had no future. He had no support, no family, no community, held no citizenship anywhere. And culturally, if you didn't have a land, you didn't have a future. If you didn't have an heir, you didn't have a blessing. You didn't have anything. Our passage says that Abraham looked at his own body and considered it to be good as, to be, considered it to be as good as dead. It's a metaphor and an idiom in the Greek that was used often to mean lacking in stamina, particularly stamina needed in order to bear a child. You get what I'm saying? All right. Abraham was as good as dead. Weak in every way. He hoped against hope. As Romans 4.18 puts it, Abraham assessed his circumstances and all the evidence pointed to the fact that he would have no family, no home, no future, no blessing, no promise, except one piece of evidence. God said so. There was one thing that was in that column of the pro column, the con column, like if you're doing a chart and you're saying, okay, what evidence suggests that this will not happen? It was packed with reasonable expectation that this will never happen. And there was one thing against it. God said so. And Abraham chose to believe that one thing, despite all the evidence against him, he chose to believe that God could make something out of nothing. That's what our passage says that he could take something that didn't exist, create something that was unlikely to happen, and Abraham said, I believe you. And God credited that to him as righteousness, justified him before God. Hope for Abraham came not through his ability to look within himself. It didn't come from him assessing his circumstances or the people around him. It came through transferring himself, transferring his trust from himself to God. That's our final ingredient for hope. To embrace hope, we need to transfer trust. This is what Abraham does, a transfer of trust from the way that, that Abraham saw things to the way that God saw things in his eternal mind, that maybe God sees things in a different way that I see things. He has spoken a word to me 
And even though the evidence suggests everything else, otherwise, I am going to believe in God. Verse 20 to 21, no one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. To give glory to God, what does it mean? What do you think about when you think, what does it mean to give glory to God? I see it a lot in athletes, right? After they succeed, they, they give glory to God. And this is definitely one of the ways that it can mean this. To give glory is to give thanks, expressing your gratitude to God for what you have and the blessing that you have, knowing that it doesn't come from yourself, but it comes to God. So you're giving him thanks and gratitude. That's one way to understand it. Another way, and probably a more prominent biblical way to understand it, to give glory to God is to be influenced more by God's opinion than any other opinion. When we choose to be influenced by God's opinion rather than the world's opinion of things, we are giving glory to God. We are choosing to believe that small evidence, yet profound evidence, that God said so, stacked up against every other evidence that, that suggests otherwise. Abraham's almost 100 years old, good as dead. His wife is unable to this, up to this point to bear children. The biological clock is not ticking. It has been smashed. It is broken. But here you have God saying something else, and Abraham chooses to believe God's word, and that's what it means to glorify God. What it means to glorify God is to believe God's word, to believe that he will do what he says he will do, even in the midst of a life that is despairing, discouraging, and feels like it won't get better. Notice what happens when he transfers his trust from the way that he sees things to the way that God sees things. What happens? Our passage says he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in faith. It actually gets better. It gets easier. It seems like the hardest thing in the world to transfer our trust from ourself to God in the midst of a hard time. But God's wisdom tells us that as we do this more and more, we actually grow stronger in doing it. We get better at it. It gets easier. We become, it becomes more natural for us to say, I know that the world seems like it's falling apart and it is, and it's broken. It doesn't work as it should, but, but God has spoken as well. And so I'm content in trusting in him. Trusting God becomes less traumatic. It becomes auto more automatic, more palatable. What does this have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with us? We need to turn this now. We need to look at Abraham and what it meant for him in order for us to understand what it means for us. This isn't just a story to benefit Abraham. It's a story to benefit us as well. We're even told so in, in verse 23. Paul says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This story is for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We will obtain and embrace the same hope and same blessing that was given to Abraham, a life, a future, a blessing, a God, when we share the same faith that Abraham shared. 
when we choose to glorify God by believing his word and his opinion above everything else. Advent is is the season of remembrance of the coming of Christ. First through his birth, also through the anticipation of his coming again to restore all all of creation to its intended good and to grant his promised eternal blessing to all who trust in him. It is not just believing that Jesus came at one point. It is believing and hoping against all hope that he has not forgotten us, that he has not given up on his promise to restore all of creation, that he will complete the good work that he's begun in us and the brokenness of this world and the evil that is, that is manifested all throughout our world will not have the final word. We can hope against hope even when all the evidence points in the opposite direction. These are big promises that God makes. Promises for us, promises for our future, promises for creation, promises for restored relationship, promises for peace with God, for the end of all weariness, for the end of all pain and suffering and betrayal, for the end of anxiety and depression and sickness, for the end of of confusion for the end of hurt, for the end of fear. And it is so easy to look around our lives and say, I know that God has promised that, but it kind of seems like it's not gonna come true. Maybe I can't embrace that hope today. But all of this hinges on the birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Promises that for all who believe like Abraham, this blessing is ours as well. That God is with us, that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he will return for us. And it's because of his birth, his life, death, and resurrection that God will never count our sin against us. Furthermore, that God will satisfy us in the midst of our struggles with the comfort of his presence. What we are called to this Christmas, we are called to hope in who when it's impossible to see how. Are are you with me? Here's what Melissa Kruger says in The Weary World Rejoices, which is a book resource out on our table if you want to take one home. She says this, at the incarnation, the fulfillment of this promise was on display for the world to see. God became man and dwelt among us. Though the path may be unclear and the way precarious, we have the one who can lead us. We cannot know the way or the why, but we know the one we follow. Isn't that really a summary of the Christian life? Isn't what we are called to in Advent the summary of our entire life as followers of Jesus on a day-to-day basis to transfer our trust from what we see and what we feel to the word of promise that God has spoken to us. This was the faith of Abraham. That's why he was called and is called the father of all who believe for we share in that kind of faith. Remember the definition of hope. Hope is a desire of some good and the conviction that you will obtain it. What good do you desire? 
What promise has Christ given to you? Look throughout his word. Look at the future that he describes. Look at the present peace that he describes to you, that is offered to you. And now think about all the evidence that's stacked against you. You feel like a failure as a mother? You feel like a failure as a father? Do you feel like a really bad Christian that if people knew your internal struggles, they'd walk away from you? Are you ashamed of your sins, your past and present and future sins because you know that they're coming? Are you hurt and beat up by the pain of this world, the confusion? Do you feel betrayed? Do you feel angry? Are you ready to give up? At not, never at any single point does God look at that evidence and say, don't think about those things. Don't worry about all that. That's just, that's just fluff. That's all out here. He says, yes, that is true. These are real things. This is what sin does. The evidence is there. It is real. It is stacked against you. But I have spoken and I have promised and I will do everything that I said I will do. The birth of Christ, God drawing nearer to us than he's ever drawn nearer to us before, coming, becoming a man, leaving, becoming a man and, and leaving the comfort and glory of heaven to enter into our sin, to become our sin, to take on the humiliation of the human experience, even to the point of death, defeating death and sin. We are to look at that and say, God's word and his promise is sure. He will do what he says and we can have hope in the midst of our suffering. Things seem like they're falling apart and at times things go really well and God's word tells us it is foolish to feel hopeful when things go well and it's also foolish to feel hopeless when things go bad. Ultimately, neither of those things should affect the ultimate hope that we have in God. For our hope is in God who is unchanging. His word is constant. His word is eternal. His promises are sure. We're called to place our hope in the, th- in the thrill of God's promises. A thrill of hope. We are meant to just like be thrilled. We are meant to be filled with adrenaline and excitement that, that even in the midst of a, of a hurting world, God speaks. He speaks to us a message of rescue and of hope. Not in some sentimental or wishful thinking, but in a real profound, literal way. We're called to place our hope in the thrill of God's promises. And I quoted a song at the beginning and want to quote another here as we close. But I think this one is, this way is, the, I think, the way that we often place our hope. And it's, it's, it's sung by Cinderella. Uh, and it's called, uh, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. In dreams, you will lose your heartaches. Whatever you wish for, you keep. Have faith in your dreams and someday your rainbow will come smiling through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing the dream that you wish will come true. We are so more influenced by the theology of Disney than the theology of God. That's how we want to feel. Like, just feel it. Just, just good things are coming. Out there, you push the bad away. Just bring in good feelings. Bring in good stuff. Bring in good encouragement. 
is not only, it's, it's not only dishonest, it, it compromises the integrity of everything we know to be true. That life hurts, that sin breaks, destroys, robs, and steals, but God rescues, redeems, and restores. Our hope is not in our ability to imagine a future that is better. Our hope is in Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. And that isn't some sentimental thing. It is so profound. And it's not just something good that happens when we are fast asleep. It is a reality that we can embrace when we are awake. For today, for tomorrow, even when you're hurting right now, We don't turn off our brain or our heart. We transfer our trust from ourselves to God. Biblical hope is a feeling anchored in the promises of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who left the comfort and glory of heaven to live an impoverished life to die a sinner's death, to defeat death and sin, and to adopt us into his forever family. And he will return. And yes, we wait today. And we don't want to wait. Because waiting is no fun. Waiting prolongs the despair, prolongs the agony. But, when we, but we can wait in hope like Abraham did. Abraham, we are told, longed to see the day that we see the coming of Christ. And we are told that he saw it. Well before Jesus was even born and died on the cross and rose, Abraham saw it because he believed. We can experience the life that he gives. Hope in Jesus, he offers you and I what we have no power to provide for ourselves, a restored relationship with God, a knowledge of what really is true, and a life that will never end. True story is meant to take over our hearts. It is meant to take over and rule our lives. Hope in Christ. Every day there is a choice for where you will place your hope. You will place it in your ability to be a better person, You will place it in your ability to convince others that you're a better person. You will place it in the ability of somebody else to give you what you need, the love, the affection, the affirmation. You will place it in the security that your government or health workers or family or workplace can give you. Or you will place it in Christ. Every day we get a choice to transfer our trust. Reflect on that this Advent season and reflect on the promise that God makes that he will never, ever break a promise he makes to you.